If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to If I Ran the Bank podcast. I'm your host, uh, Clayton Weir. We're really excited for another episode. Um, today's episode is one of those things where, you know, we all see the news feed in our inbox, the kind of daily roundup news blast about this company getting bought or that company raising $100 million and all the flashy headlines. And every once in a while, there's a more subdued headline in there that maybe is the actual news. And I saw one of those the other day where the clearinghouse and some of their owner banks and a couple other technology partners announced this really interesting new initiative on how they were going to manage data access and and, uh, screen scraping or direct access or whatever you want to call it amongst their accounts and amongst various fintechs. And it just struck me as the real news, even if it was maybe unflashy on the service. So luckily, the pilot program is run by a, a, a connection of mine, Ben Isaacson, who is uh, the today, I guess, is the leader in the connected banking program at the clearinghouse, but has been a lifelong, I guess, financial services product person at, at big banks, at really entrepreneurial neobanks, and on the infrastructure side, I think at both at, uh, at MasterCard and now at, at the Clearinghouse. And so I invited him on and kind of want to unpack that, what I think is deeply maybe unsexy on the service, but I, I think ultimately found foundational and uh, challenging or, uh, you know, industry changing announcement you guys made a couple of weeks ago. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Clayton. Um, is there anything, anything, any blanks you want to fill in on your background? Um, sure. So, you know, you, you did a pretty good job. So, um, I, I, I lead connected banking at, at the clearinghouse. Um, for those of you who don't know what the clearinghouse is, um, we're a consortium owned by 24 of the largest banks in the country, um, providing market infrastructure and other services. Um, we, you know, primarily on the payment side. So we move, um, about $2 trillion a day. Um, through our, our wire services, our ACH services, and increasingly our real-time payments. Um, we're also a place where you know, these banks kind of come together to solve and address industry issues that are larger than any one bank. And you know, what we call connected banking is one of those. Um, does it make sense, Clayton, for me to kind of describe connected banking and what that is? Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, that's a, a slightly different um, connected banking being a slightly different, I guess, version of some terms that that we may be all using here. I'd love to hear your definition of that. Sure. So um, connected banking is really what we what we look at is a slightly similar version to what many in the industry would call open banking. So like open banking, what it's focusing on is data sharing between banks and financial apps. Um, but why we focus on calling it connected is our belief is that in order for it to be effective and ultimately scale to its potential, it requires technical, legal, collabor- and, and risk collaboration between the parties. Whereas when you call something open banking, it kind of implies a free-for-all where anyone can get access to bank data and use it for any purpose we want, they want. Um, 
and yeah, so 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 that's so that's um you know that's my responsibility in the area that um you know that I lead at the clearinghouse. And this seems like an interesting evolution of I've I've heard the term and I think it's kind of uniquely American of of market based open banking, right? And it's really I guess that's the idea that in most markets in the world it's been this regulatory regime, but in the United States there's all these sort of competitive pressures and reasons that that banks and and fintechs and um, others involved in this ecosystem have kind of forced the market towards more openness, or in this sense, this, you know, more aspects of connectedness, um, without there being this, like, guiding hand of the the government sort of enforcing a model on it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I think in, um, in many areas, um, you know, the US has been, you know, kind of more po- private sector driven in, in this area. Um, but a lot of it, to, to me, kind of starts from kind of screen scraping has almost been a uniquely U.S. creation, right? Where you could argue that the U.S. had open banking starting 20 years ago when companies like Yodely, um, you know, kind of figured out how to do screen scraping and get data from bank accounts without having to go to the banks, right? Um, and essentially what they were doing was they'd have, they go, you know, they'd partner with your favorite app and when you signed onto the app, they'd ask the consumer, hey, in order for this app to work, you need to give us your bank username and password. And the consumers would do it. Um, so, you know, and, and Yodley would take that, the bank username and password, and basically log into the site and, you know, take the data they needed. Um, so, so, again, the kind of the innovation and like the apps and the services that, um, other markets have tried to drive by kind of different regulatory regimes were actually happening through the private sector for the last 20 years. Um, so, so, so that's one of the reasons why this is a little bit different. And a lot of the work is kind of, you, you know, as we see it, is looking to how do you kind of take the best of the services that have been enabled, the thousands of apps that users use every day, and you know, make that into a model that is ultimately safe and sound and scalable for for everybody. I think that's a really good point, and it's it's maybe you know, I guess your macro point being that the United States has had some version of open banking for twenty years, uh, this you know, very scrappy version. But you know, when we think about that, why open banking and what happens once you have it, we already have that case, right, to your point in the United States. So if you think of the accumulative sort of enterprise value of uh, Venmo and Plaid and, um, you know, Wealthfront and SoFi and all these businesses that maybe aren't even possible without the sort of screen scraping, direct access kind of based version of open banking, like that, none of that has happened, right? None of those things that have made people's lives better, financial life more healthy, like they were all driven on this duct tape version of open banking, right? We So we saw that when you get access to that stuff, you can build very compelling and creative applications for people. Yeah, that, that, that's, exa- that's exactly right. And, you know, on the innovation side, we've certainly seen that. Um, but on the flip side, when you kind of look at the safety and soundness side, what you now have are, you know, and this is public, right? So you look at like a Plaid, right? Plaid says they have, you know, access credentials and and data for you know over 25% of the bank accounts in the country right so this is an unregulated institution 
with you know more bank data than you know the two largest banks in the country combined you know that's um you know so it's kind of gotten so it's kind of gotten to a place where you know from a safety and soundness perspective you'd really be hoping for a better model yeah they're almost systemically important in a, a, a data breach sense um so why don't I, I'm just going to play kind of a, a, like what I think is the four dummies version of kind of the quick history of, of the recent history of screen scraping. And then I think it would lead into maybe just a kind of two minutes to actually expand on what you guys are doing with this sort of, um, you know, TCH true sight sort of um, um, oversight pilot program that you launched. So from my perspective, right. So you described it, we've had this for 20 years, we've done this screen scraping thing where, for people that aren't technical, effectively what happens is you log in with your username and your password for online banking. And this, you know, the vendor stores that effectively in plain text, probably in their own database. And at two in the morning, they log into chase.com on your behalf. They know what, you know, what line in the HTML code, the balances for your different accounts sit at, they pull those numbers out, they see that you do have a checking account that is still open, those kinds of things, they store it. And then, you know, they kind of charge a dollar for every developer that needs that right for their app to say, hey, this is actually Ben, he has that account. That's how they get it. And so again, to kind of go the mid part of that journey was, as those things became more popular, kind of in the post financial crash, like fintech revolution, and the just the number of logins goes up, started to cause a bunch of hassle for banks, I think, on the server side, where they have to, you know, two in the morning, there's all of a sudden a million robots showing up to chase.com to check balances, and it creates production incidents and all this kind of stuff. And then, so I think the more recent chapters, then, well, you know, the first thing the banks do is they just cancel it, right? They block the IP addresses, they say, hey, no more robots, whatever. Then they take a million calls to their call center that say, Mint.com doesn't work. SoFi doesn't work. Um, uh, you know, Zelle doesn't work anymore because this connection's been broken on the authentication side. And then based on angry customers, they started working with the aggregators to give them a sort of structured, reliable data access, right? So now probably with most of your clearinghouse banks or the, the larger of your owner banks, they probably tend to have these real non-screen scraping data sharing connections with some combination of the big market players, right? And I, you could kind of challenge me on any version of this narrative, but I think that's kind of what brings us to what you guys are doing is now, well, how do we ensure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing in that construct? Yeah, so I'd say that the d definition of screen scraping is, is, is spot on. And I think that that's definitely um, been, been the issue. Um, I would say, you know, while there have been API-based data sharing agreements, um, as you mentioned, typically between the largest banks and the largest data aggregators, it's still really uneven. Um, and, you know, behind the scenes, you know, just because you've seen an announcement that there's a data sharing agreement doesn't mean that that's all-encompassing. So it might not cover every use case, every piece of data. Um, and it, it, and while you've seen some of the stuff in the public, um, there 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 are very few banks that have really done this at scale, um, and even among the largest banks, it, it's still pretty uneven. So you know, I would argue that the industry is making progress on, on those 
on uh, on those agreements. Oh, and then the final thing, of course, is just because you've done the agreement doesn't mean it's been implemented yet. So a lot of those agreements that have been created are still in various stages of implementation. Those tend to take a while. So, you know, this is an area that while we're seeing promise for sure, um, we would like to see it accelerated. Um, and part of that is, you know, how do you put the conditions in place to, to actually make it go faster? And so I guess do you want to maybe expand on that a little bit. So that like, so what, what, you know, what is, how are you guys doing that? Like, cause I think that's kind of what, what you're sort of carrying that burden or the flag for that at the moment, right. Is trying to, trying to make that work better. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 absolutely. So, you know, so to us making it work faster and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, the one thing I'll say about this is it's really kind of a different type of condition that I've seen in any other area of banking or payments in, you know, in, in my, in my career, um, because it's, um, you, you know, it's actually, it like violates every stereotype you think about, you know, about the industry. Um, so, you know, on one hand, you know, you have these, you know, the quote unquote fast moving nimble fintechs, right? The ones getting, you know, t- billion dollars in VC funding and all of those types of things. But they're the ones locked into a 20 year old legacy technology, which is challenging to move away from because it requires them to change many aspects of their business, right? Um, and, you know, that's what they always accuse banks of being. But but in this case, it's the fintechs who have the legacy technology, which is screen scraping, right? Then you have the, you know, you, you don't see my air quotes, in, but like old stodgy banks. And, you know, they're the ones who are actually actively trying to migrate to more modern technology. Um, and, and, and finally, on the kind of transparency side, you're, you know, you have the consumer groups who typically aren't always like the best friends of banks. They're saying that the current screen scraping model isn't transparent to consumers. And, you know, these, you know, again, air quotes, underdog fintechs um, who, who talk a lot about how they're helping consumers are actually being deceptive in some of these practices. So it, it's really kind of a very interesting ecosystem that we're trying to kind of evolve from. And so what, what we're, we're doing at the Clearinghouse, so under this um, program called Connected Banking, um, we're really looking at um, how do we kind of unlock all the bottlenecks or barriers to, to adoption at scale of API-based data sharing. Um, so some of that is things like technology standards. Um, so we're a founding member of Financial Data Exchange, which is an API-based standard body. It's an API standards body for data sharing, um, and that includes many of the largest banks, data aggregators, users of financial data. You know, all working together to create a standard. Uh, because what we know is with that, with ten thousand banks and thousands of fintechs. If you don't have a common API standard, then every new implementation becomes a new build. And, you know, we just don't think that's ever going to scale. So, you know, that's one that's one key area that we've been actively involved with. Um, we're on the board of FDX and, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of great progress there. Um, the second is, you know, looking at, you know, kind of how do we accelerate the technology side of this? So similar to how the Clearinghouse runs other payments networks, 
um, we were an investor and kind of facilitator in other investors um, um, investing in Acquia, um, which we look at as a data sharing network. Um, because what we believe is that the best way for the industry to scale is rather than having thousands of banks trying to individually connect with thousands of fintechs, you have a common a common you know place where um, with one connection you can have access to everyone. So if one one bank connects into Acquia, then any fintech or 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 data aggregator that's connected can get access to that bank's data. If um, if that data aggregator or fintech connects into Okoya, they can have access to every to every bank's data. So rather than having to make thousands of connections, you only have to make one. Um, so again, we were um, an early investor and facilitator in, in Okoya, along with eleven of our owner banks um, and Fidelity um, Investments, and you know we spun out Okoya to be that data sharing network. And then, you know, the final piece, which um, you, you had alluded to at the beginning and kind of the, the kind of the beginning of this discussion was really looking at how do we get through all the significant bank risk requirements that come up around third parties? So it's a regulatory requirement that banks do due diligence on any party that they um, that, that, that they partner with. Um, and you know, with good reason, um, you know this is um, this is very uh, important as as part of of any kind of data sharing agreement. So when you think about it, you know, banks are sharing um, their customer data, many a lot of which is personally identifiable or PII, you know, with, with potentially thousands of different parties. So you know, these are th- these would be considered high risk partners. So what we looked at is, you know, how how do we do that in a scalable way? Because, you know, this process is due diligence. The banks are requiring these partners to answer hundreds of questions, prepare documents for review, participating in multiple, you know, multiple day on-site visits. Uh, It's a tremendous amount of work. So if you look at how this scales and play this out, you have hundreds of banks all trying to do their own risk reviews on fintechs and data aggregators. Um, it's just not feasible for either the fintech or data aggregator or the bank. So what we have been working with and what we announced in collaboration with uh, with, with TrueSight and KY3P um, is a service where um, fintechs can go through a common risk review. And once they've gone through that review, it can be shared with any bank they're trying to do business with. Um, now, from a regulatory perspective, each bank is still required to make their own risk decision. But what they'll have through this through this report is all the information they need to make that decision. So all of a sudden, something that has historically taken six months at a time can be done, you know, can can, can be done, you know, in a week. And and it doesn't require, you know, significant work from, you know, the, the party being evaluated to to complete it. So, you know, so that so those are the things we're working on, um, all very different. Um, I, I like that you you use the word unsexy because, yes, some of this is deeply unsexy, but it's really the hard work you need to do to get an infrastructure 
kind of ready to do all the kind of much sexier parts of, of when people, the, the things that happen when people talk about open banking or connected banking. I agree completely. And I, I find so much interesting. I mean, it's obviously no secret that that my day job is where, uh, you know, a young uh, services like a fintech vendor to banks, right? So we sell enterprise software to banks. So I've personally filled these, you know, 400 page questionnaires out. And it's, it's it just has always struck me as bizarre, right? In the sense, both that um, just the deadweight loss to both the bank and us each time, and just generally the disincentive to kind of innovation or taking on the marginal partner because of rightfully how big the burden is of proof on this stuff, right? Like you obviously need to know who you're working on. And this, I mean, this has gotten materially more onerous, I think, since the last financial crash. Um, and, and it's right, but these ways to make it more efficient and more nimble just strike me as really important. I, I think ultimately it, throttles or enables the ability of a bank to be innovative, right? So if you kind of ask me if I ran the bank, one of the things I do is I'd kind of show up in the procurement and risk departments and try and like find what I could do there to create agility, right? I think that's where a lot of good and bad sort of emerges in terms of our actual operating businesses and our product portfolio as banks, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I would would say... You know, one of the key things, so when I think about what a bank has to do to get ready for connected banking, you know, part of it is the technical side of it, right? It's getting the APIs ready, like getting all your data organized in one place so you so the APIs actually can connect to it. Um, you know, and that's significant work, and I do not want to underestimate how much work that is. But the other piece of it is just what you said. It's it's kind of that philosophical change around how do you do risk management at scale? How do you do legal contracting at scale? How do you do it if, if rather than you know partnering for to offer a service was the exception, it became the rule? Uh, and and I do believe banks would have fundamentally different approaches. And you know, to us, one of the things we see through this effort is the benefit of a consortium like the Clearinghouse in kind of leading a bunch of these because, you know, a lot of the benefit were is the collaborative environment we have across these banks, where you know the risk partners from each of the major banks were in a room together, you know, figuring this stuff out, and you know, it, it's hard for for folks to kind of drive change alone sometimes. And it's kind of comforting to have, you know, your peers in a place where you can all collaborate and all kind of, you know, um, you, you know, kind of build off each other to get to the place that ultimately you need to, you need to be. So that begs a bunch of other, I think, interesting comments and questions. But the one thing I wanted to do here, I think you mentioned to me offline, I'm guessing it's your opinion that this model you're piloting in some ways is is better and safer and more robust than the European model. And, and maybe I'll just preface that with a, this the best analogy I could think of on the fly. But um, I think the I, best way to explain open banking to somebody is it's fundamentally the idea that in the vault at the bank, it's not really gold bars or coins anymore. It's data, right? And to extend that analogy further, the idea of open banking is really almost the equivalent of like ATM machines in the sense that there's ATM machines all over. Um, They are places that I want to be. Some of them are offered by my bank and some of them are offered by other banks and some of them are offered by other non-banks, right? And so I go to the 
ATM machine and I have to absolutely prove I'm me, I have to have my card and I have to have the key to get the money out, right? And I know I'm getting hundred. So I authenticate it, right? And that's how open banking works. It's I'm making the decision to share data if I'm in the UK and I say I authorize that app, right? The way I would authorize an ATM to to ask my take money out of my bank. But I think in this model versus the, the UK, um, you don't really, you know that you've authorized it and you know that, that that fintech and that the aggregator did some amount of work to be allowed to connect to the open banking regime. But you really don't know at any moment in time how adherent to anything they said they're going to do or what their best practices are, right? And in some ways, this is what you're solving for is this robust, continuous view of these of of all these people in this data value chain and and whether they're doing what they said they were going to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and it's actually it's a regulatory requirement of the banks that that get done. And so, you know, this is something that you that we'd want to do anyway because it's good practice. Um but also, you know, banks face a lot of the financial reputational and regulatory burden if it doesn't work that way um but 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 that's exactly right getting to a place where um right you have that kind of transparency but you also have some of those rules in place around um uh, you, you know the, the yeah I, sorry i keep using the word transparency but <laughs> but you you have you have the rules in place so the consumers ultimately know how it's how it's working and where their recourse is and making sure that recourse is done in a fair way um, is all really where I think the industry needs to go to scale, because if it, because a lot of the places where there's been friction between banks and data aggregators or banks and fintechs, the the reason for that friction is is largely either regulatory driven or you know that the model in place um, kind of does fundamentally you know you know, kind of puts consumers in, in, in positions where they don't understand what's happening. Totally agree. And so I think the byproduct of you guys doing this, right, and we, we talked a little bit offline, and it was another one of these, like, you know, a Wednesday afternoon at four o'clock press releases that no one maybe read or noticed how important it was. But the, the CFPB put out this principles on data sharing, right? And they really outlined, I don't know if there was seven or eight or six or whatever it was, but they really outlined, I think, kind of how dire this situation was at the time and what needed to change, right? And how it, while it added a lot of value on the competitiveness and the service levels to clients that it like nobody really understood what the risk cocktail was that they were consuming. And I think this answers it. So it really does seem interesting, right? You know, FDX and it really positions themselves as, as sort of, you know, enabling a market-based effort. I think this initiative layers over top really well as this, you know, Acquaya. But realistically, it seems almost like the, the legacy side of the industry, right? The bank side is kind of trying to bring about a, a smart, version of how they think open banking could and should work for them um and and maybe if everybody does a really good job maybe maybe there isn't maybe it kind of you know tamps down the need for a a, a government led you know a regulatory led version of open banking in, in the united states which does obviously seem not likely to happen tomorrow or or you know anytime foreseeable future and much less likely than it than it is quite possibly likely to be less wide-ranging in scope as it was in Europe or the UK, I would guess. 
Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right. Like where where this started is we we very much believed that um, number one we were big proponents of the CFPB principles that that you mentioned that came out. We thought that they got at the principal level they really got it right, and these were all things that we we believed in and we agreed it with, and we needed to strive to push it forward. Um, what we've found in the market is, in our belief, was that you know, historically regulations, even ones with great intentions and kind of great principles behind them, you know, the, the, the details suffer, right? Because a lot of the, you know, the folks, you know, creating the regulations, they don't do this every day, right? And um, so implementing some of the regulations can sometimes have a, a lot of unintended consequences that, you know, our belief was the faster we moved as an industry, in alignment with those principles that the CFPB outlined, the less ultimate regulatory, you know, work would have to be done. Now, you know, we've seen, so, you know, a few months ago, the CFPB came out with an advance notice of public rulemaking. Um, and, you know, we responded to that as did many other players in the industry. Um, so, you know, we do think that there's a, there's a better than average chance that there will be some regulation. But I think your point that the the more we can do on the private sector side, the more limited that regulation can be. And it doesn't have to be all encompassing like the UK's open banking or PSD2 um, because the industries has addressed a, a number of the, of the underlying issues. Let's just maybe transition for a second. And I mean, maybe this is an unfair question. Maybe you have thought this through or not, but in some ways, and we just had a, a couple episodes ago, we talked to Mike Siegel from ISO 2022 Labs and, you know, really talked about like, you know, in B2B, how important the modern, like effectively the, you know, the TCH's clearing system, more so as an information sharing system, how powerful it's going to be, right? Especially as we get all these, it, it strikes me if you plant it in degree and whether you want to agree with that or not, it doesn't matter because I, I agree that the, the, the mod, like the real-time payments rail that you get, you guys have built as an organization, I think is almost not as much about the movement of money or value as it is about information, right? I think it's just going to manifest in weird ways and people are going to bring it. But I, I believe that like what you're doing here is almost a precursor to like what I could see that in 10 years, right? Where there will be all kinds of people accessing the information rails of the of the real time there'll be all kinds of third parties accessing it right and wanting to exchange data on that network i'm thinking specifically in b2b context but it seems like you almost kind of are anticipating some of that 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 the the clearinghouse is actually a much more obvious player at the center of a an, an open or connected banking regime than it would maybe seem on the surface yeah i think a lot of what we've done on the payment side is um prepares us for that right um being a consortium kind of being a payment network again i kind of talked about earlier around acquire there's a lot of similarities between a data network and, and, a, and a payment network um both in terms of you know how you can kind of create a central hub the way you manage an architect for scale the importance of of, of a good common rule set all of those things are uh, are are very are very similar. Um, I do agree with with everything you just said on real time payments, and I think the you know things like uh, requests for payment that are getting built out and the ability to kind of move information similar to like an invoice 
you know, within the real-time payment system are all going to be incredible improvements. Um, I think this, from a data perspective, you know, can be, um, yeah, can be even more powerful because you look at all the consumer data that's sitting in a bank account and all the things that it can be used for, right? So right now, today, we have thousands of, of, of fintech apps, but there are new companies, new use cases being created every day. Um, and I look at kind of the future of that. And, you know, from a bank perspective, I think it becomes mission critical um, just to become very good at, you know, kind of dealing with the realities of this new ecosystem where, you know, where you have to be comfortable with other parties providing financial services to your customers, right? Because even if I can look at the 4,000 apps out there, and 3,950 of them are terrible, right? And we'll all go out of business in two years, right? 50 of them are going to stay. And and your customers are going to use some of them. And so banks have to kind of be prepared for that world. And I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity, right? Um, in, you know, if banks really embrace being providers of data, what does that mean, right? Um, if banks looked at some of those apps and said, well, why don't I pull them into my suite, right? Because if my customer is using my services and using their services, why don't I, why don't I offer them, right? Why don't, they become a distribu- why don't we become a distribution channel for some of these apps? I know, when, you know in a prior life when I, was wor- when I was working in a bank, whenever we talked to a fintech, that was always their number one question was, hey, can you sell my app to your customers? Um, and banks that don't have a good mechanism of doing that today, I think there's a lot they can do there, um, either directly into their suite or into, like, call it an app store type of model. Um, but there's a lot of ways that banks can, right, they can provide data services, they can, you know, become distribution engines for other parties that, you know, that provide services that they don't, um, or really use it to enhance their own products by, by integrating them. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity there if they, if, you know, once, you know, the, the ecosystem is set up, right. I couldn't agree more. And I actually think maybe that's the right place to sort of wrap the conversation. Cause I think, I think you've nailed it right across all those dimensions. Um, there's amazing opportunities for banks to, create value for their users in a way that doesn't diminish their own value or the importance of their brand or the relationship with their customers. And I think that does get lost at times in these conversations. So I, I appreciate that. Um, maybe just before we wrap completely, just on a, on a lighter note, um, often ask this, what's the, uh, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done that maybe later turned out to be a good idea? So, um, I was working um, in, in a prior life. I, I was working on a project um, that I was leading um, when the when the financial crisis kind of hit, and I realized that the project just didn't make any sense anymore. And it was still fully funded. It was like there was a lot of momentum behind it, but I went to the project sponsor and I shut it down. I said, "This makes zero sense to do anymore." I know it's funded. I know I'm violating every rule of, you know, a product manager, but I think we should shut this down. 
because no one's going to buy it for the next three years. And I got my wish. I, I shut it down. Um, and it turned out it actually ended up making my job a lot smaller and less meaningful. And I actually, you know, annoyed a whole lot of people who were, who thought this was a good idea. <laughs> um, and ultimately what it did is it offered, it, it offered oppor an opportunity at a new company where I got to kind of, you know, do the exact type of work I wanted to do. And, you know, fundamentally kind of reshape my career in a way that, 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 that works. Um, so I, I guess, I guess that's the best way I can answer that question, at least from a career perspective. It's a, no, I think that's a great, a great story. And I, th I mean, I think the, one of the lessons I take away from that is, uh, um, I feel, especially as product managers, but I think as everybody in lives, we actually don't say no to things often enough, right? We don't see the, the value to just, we don't end things, right? We don't end features or products or initiatives fast enough often. And, and quite often it, it might be painful in the short term, but often leads us to the right thing later. So no, I appreciate that. Um, well, I think that takes us to time. So, I mean, th thanks so much, Ben. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate the conversation. I just think the work you guys are doing over there is really fascinating. And I think is maybe even one of these things that might not be fully appreciated. You know, I, I love the Bill Gates quote, right? That we we always overestimate uh, innovations of the next two years and underestimate the, the decade, you know, what, what's going to happen in the decade time scale. But I totally think that this is the kind of foundational stuff, right? That, that a decade from now becomes really important and, what gets built on top of it might be might be quite interesting. Well, no, I, I really appreciate that, and I'm I'm really glad you recognize that because you know we we were we've actually been really pleasantly surprised with the results. Um, you know, we thought this was going to be a wonky press release that nobody really thought about or cared about, and we've actually been getting some great feedback. So, you know, really appreciate those comments. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks everybody for listening. As always. Uh, please, you know, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon podcast, wherever, wherever you get your podcasts and uh, never hesitate to share this with, with a friend. And if you want to learn more, you can always check out, uh, Fispan.com, F-I-S-P-A-N.com. And, uh, you know, questions, comments, concerns, always happy to, always happy to hear more from you. Thanks.